Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. We have a big chapter ahead of us, so we're just going to jump in and smile at all the people who walk in late. Be sweet. Let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for a year in which we have been able to study the Gospel of Luke, and as we near the end of this Gospel, we ask your continued blessing upon us. Fill us with your Spirit, that we may especially today and next week be inspired by the work you do in the world, that we may join that work to continue to grow your kingdom on earth. We ask blessings upon all those who have asked for our prayers, including Effie, Robbie, Bob, Taylor, David, Melanie, Jack, and all those we hold in our hearts and minds. All this we ask in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry I missed you all last week. I was at what I will call a, a very inspiring clergy conference. So, would have rather been here with you, but that's all right. We will catch up today. So today is the second to last week of our Luke study together. And some people have been asking what we're going to be doing next year. And so just as a reminder, we're going to be doing Acts next year. And I know we are in the middle of a sermon series on Acts right now in this Easter season. So you'll have kind of a high level look at Acts. But because Luke wrote both books, I wanted to do both in the first two years of this study. Now, I'd love to continue this for years and years, but for at least the first two years, we're doing Luke and Acts. And so no meeting over the summer. You can go off, have a lovely time, although you will be at church on Sunday. But we will end Luke next week. So just as a final you know, reminder, we'll send an email out to everyone who couldn't make it today, but we will be doing chapter 23 today, chapter 24 next week, and that closes us out of the Gospel of Luke, and then we'll come back either the, f the week or the second week after Labor Day in September and begin Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles actually has a few more chapters than Luke does, but we should be able to squeeze them in, and we're going to basically model the same schedule that we use this year, a couple weeks off at Christmas, you know, nothing on Thanksgiving, nothing on spring break, that sort of thing, and we'll have a schedule for you that we'll both email out and then hand you in hard copy come September when we come back together. So chapter 23 of Luke is heavy. This is the heavy day. And last week was decently heavy, but this is heavier. And this is the week that we go kind of down into the pit so that next week we can really rise with all the hopefulness. And so hang with me as we do what we call this, the passion story. Chapters 23, 22 and 23 are the passion, is the passion story. Chapter 23 is really the second half. So after Jesus has had dinner with his disciples, prayed in the garden, been arrested, now we shift to the trial. And so before we jump in, are there any questions from last week that might help us set up what we will study this week? Someone who's not here is calling with a question. <laughs> Chapter 23 is in four parts. The first is the trial. The second is the sentencing. 
The third is the crucifixion. And the fourth is the death and burial. Pretty simple, straightforward. We know this story. And so what I want to do is look at the very specific way that Luke tells this story. And what I mean by that is this chapter, this story, happens in all four Gospels, which means that being people who have been in the church for a long time, perhaps our whole lives, we have, in essence, mashed up the four Gospels into one bigger story. No problem. Except when we do a Bible study, we're really looking at a specific way that the story is told. And so what I want you to kind of hold in your mind today is the mashup you might be able to tell off the top of your head so that we can get to the specifics of the way Luke tells this story. I really want you to know how Luke emphasizes certain ways of telling the story in order to make a particular point. I know we discussed at the beginning of this that the Gospels are sort of like portraits of Jesus. Right? If you were to ask four different artists to paint a portrait of you, you would get four different portraits. Now, you would still be able to see that it's you, but they would all be slightly different because the artist is looking to emphasize different features in different ways. The light is a little different. Perhaps the background's a little different. Perhaps our chins are bigger or smaller, you know, all that sort of stuff. And the gospel writers are doing that same sort of thing with Jesus. Luke's portrait is important for us to understand so that we are able to know the story Luke is trying to tell. We begin with the trial. For Luke, the trial is a very important moment because it sets Jesus up to be compared to what Jesus is not. And so as the trial begins, Jesus is sent to Pilate. Now, the Jewish leaders have arrested Jesus and taken him to Pilate for one very important reason. Jesus is a problem, and the Jewish leaders could arrest and jail Jesus for the rest of his life. But Jesus is enough of a problem for them that they want Jesus gone for good. The Jewish leaders cannot condemn anyone to death. That's against the law. They're religious laws. And so they hand Jesus over to Pilate and compel Pilate, as a representative of Rome, to condemn Jesus to death because of his heresy, his rebellion, his, the dangerous stuff that he has been saying that undermines the authority of Rome. Now, Jesus has upturned the predictability that the leadership likes. He has made himself a thorn in the side of the Jewish leaders. And so it's not okay for them to simply put him in a cell, but they really want him dead. It's important for us to note, before we get into this trial, that Jesus is not the only person saying a lot of revolutionary things. Right? I think we may know that intellectually, but just as a reminder, Jesus is not the only person walking around and teaching and gathering followers around an idea that is not perhaps the status quo. Jesus happens to be doing this in a way that is more religious than political, but the ramifications of his teachings are most certainly political as well. 
This is important to note because when we get to the point where Pilate actually brings out another criminal, it may not make sense as to why the crowd wants the other person released. But it fundamentally rests on the idea that there are lots of people doing what Jesus is doing in similar ways. Lots of people spouting criticisms against the Jewish leaders because they seem too comfortable resting in the bosom of Rome. Jesus just happens to be the one that has gotten the attention of the Jewish leaders in a more significant way. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, Pilate doesn't spend much time with Jesus. It's very obvious that Pilate doesn't really see how this Jesus person is that threatening. Because unlike others, Jesus is not violent. That's what seems a little odd to Pilate about this situation. The Jewish leaders have brought other revolutionaries to him, to Rome, but those other revolutionaries have been brought there because of their violence. Whereas Jesus basically hasn't done anything. And so Pilate says, you know what, this is not my problem. Go deal with this yourself. This gets us to an important distinction. What is the difference between Pilate and Herod? Pilate is the governor of Judea, the governor of Israel. That means that Rome has sent a representative of the emperor to that region of Judea to represent Roman interests. It is very likely that Pilate is an up-and-comer, and he was sent to Judea, not a very important place, to, in essence, prove himself. And once he proves himself, he might make partner and get to move to a better place, right? Sort of like sending someone to Alaska. Alaska's not bad, but Alaska is where you start your career, not perhaps end it. And so Pilate has been sent over to Judea to begin his career as a leader, and he is likely looking to rise up in the ranks and get to a slightly cushier place. Herod is, in essence, king. He's the local authority. But do not misunderstand, Herod is king because Rome wants him to be. So Herod has not been elected. Herod has certainly not been chosen in any other way that makes him legitimate, except that Rome knows they can control him. And his purpose is really to do the small stuff. Rome will handle the big things. The local leaders handle the small things. And so Herod has a very comfortable life because Rome has propped him up. We know how this works, right? We, know, we have this today, right? There are certainly leaders around the world who are there eh, because the U.S. wants them to be. It's a very similar idea. Now, it may not be as cynical as I'm presenting it, but it's the same difference. Pilate sees Jesus as a small thing, and so he has no time for the small things and sends Jesus over to Herod. What's interesting about this moment is that Jesus' visit to Herod is only in Luke. And so this is one of those moments where, although we can parse out some of the other features of the story, I want to look at this moment with Herod because it is only in Luke. Jesus goes to Herod, and Herod begins questioning why Jesus is a threat. What is interesting about this moment is that Herod and Pilate sort of approach Jesus the same way. 
this guy's not doing anything that bad. Yeah, he might be teaching some stuff that is religiously heretical, but he's not killing anybody, he's not blowing anything up, he's not really doing anything that matters, and so why are we messing with him? But for Luke, the real opportunity in this story, in the moment of the story, is to compare the earthly king of the Jews to the heavenly king of the Jews. Luke is setting up Jesus as compared to Herod. Herod, who has been propped up by earthly power to be in charge, who by any stretch of the imagination is the safest, strongest, most important of all the Jews, is nothing compared to Jesus's divine role. Jesus's divine role puts him heads and shoulders above anything that earthly power can do. And so Luke uses Herod as a foil to show how Jesus may not be strong by earthly standards, but is stronger than everyone else in God's kingdom. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate because Herod, although could put someone to death, is not going to mess with this guy because too many people like him. And even though he hasn't done anything explicitly wrong or bad in a physical sense, Herod's smart enough not to get thrown into those uh, bramble bushes. And so Herod sends Pilate Jesus, and Pilate has to deal with Jesus. But here is the very interesting part. At the end of this first section, Luke writes, this is verse 12, after Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, that same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. Now, we could read that line. I, I, I lift that up because that's a really strange thing to say. We could read that line with a cynical eye to say that Herod and Pilate began to conspire against Jesus and that shared conspiring made them friends. But that's not really what Luke is saying. Luke is saying they became friends. That's it. And the way that I like to read this is simply that Jesus and his presence, his power, cannot help but reconcile people to one another. And so even in this trial, even though Jesus is here arrested and potentially will be killed, his presence between these two enemies is enough to heal and reconcile their, their relationship to one another. Any questions about this before we move on to the sentencing? Uh, so is the question kind of how did Herod get there? Okay. We remember from the birth narratives that Herod in Matthew, Herod tries to kill all, or doesn't try to, kills all the boys, the infant babies. That is Herod the Great. This Herod is Herod the Great's son. Now, still Herod, but in a way, well, that is his name. I was going to say, Herod almost becomes like a title. That's not really true. I lied. Never mind. So, this is simply Herod's son. So, Herod the Great had two sons that mattered, and in essence, when he died, the kingdom was split. And this Herod 
is the king of perhaps the more important area, which includes Jerusalem and the temple. And so it's not the same person. It's likely that, someone give me an example of how this works somewhere else in the world right now. That's a really good, thank you. So if you know much about the Middle East, you know that post-World War I, really post-World War II, the area was in essence divided up from being colonial outposts of Western Europe to standalone nations, which is one of the reasons why we have a lot of the conflict that we have today, because these countries were simply just cut out of a mess and put together. And part of the wisdom behind that was leaving these countries unstable. Iraq's a great example of you've got three different ethnic groups in one country that don't want to be together. And so if you don't know the history of this, you might say, then why are they together in the first place? Well, it's because we put them together in order to leave the region unstable so we could manipulate and benefit from their natural oil reserves. Haha, <laughs> how's that for cynical? So, I mean, you can disagree if you want to, but that's what happened. So Saudi Arabia was one of those countries that the U.S. propped up a particular family in order to control those natural resources. And there have been multiple generations of that family that have rolled into power. It's, it's possible, maybe likely, that that family would not be in power if there was some kind of democratic reality in Saudi Arabia. One way or the other, that family has, in essence, become a monarchy because we liked the person who was in charge at first. That's, in essence, what has happened with the Herod family. Rome liked them, they were put in charge, and it worked. And so as one paternal leader died, the next one came into power, and we have one of Herod the Great's sons here in this scene. Does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions before we move on to the sentencing? So what Karen said is that, is I think a, an important point to make about the entire story here. Luke tells this story such that in the end, Jesus is innocent. That's an important, that's a nuanced distinction between other Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is, in the end, innocent. In other Gospels, say take Matthew's, Luke is, in the end, the Son of God. It's slightly different. And we can certainly say that it's pointing, that they are pointing to the same deeper truth, just getting at it differently. But there is this thread of Jesus' innocence throughout Luke that is not as explicitly present in the other Gospels. And so as we go through this, if you haven't read it yet, you can go back and read this chapter. It's very easy to read. That is reiterated over and over again. There are moments when Jesus' innocence is explicit in Luke's telling of this story. We'll see that in just one second when we get to the sentencing. So as we shift to the sentencing, Jesus was given to Pilate, sent to Herod, and now is back with Pilate. And Pilate, in every gospel, there is at least the implication that Pilate does not want to do anything to Jesus. 
that he simply is trying to respond to the Jewish leaders to keep the peace. Now remember, Pilate is trying to get a promotion. And so if Pilate lets things fall into chaos, then he's not going to get promoted. And so at this point, Pilate is faced with a man who he believes is innocent. But he's also faced with a crowd of people who will cause a huge uproar if he lets this innocent man go. And so he picks the most useful option for him, which is, you know, let Jesus die to keep the peace so he can hopefully get that promotion sooner rather than later. But it doesn't change the fact that Pilate sees something in Jesus that he would prefer not to condemn. And for Luke, Pilate, that's made explicit. So if we look at verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death, so I'll have him flogged and released. Pilate wants to release him, and yet the crowd does not let him. The crowd continues to pressure Pilate, and so Pilate brings out Barabbas. In Matthew, Barabbas is actually called Jesus Barabbas. It is very important that we understand that although Barabbas was almost certainly a person, Barabbas is really meant to show how the guilty in the world go free, and yet the innocent do not. Barabbas represents us. Barabbas is likely just another revolutionary. And like any revolutionary, he is convicted of what he thinks is true. And he is likely imprisoned because he has done certain things that are technically illegal for what he would certainly believe is a higher good. In other words, Barabbas has done stuff that justifies his bad for a higher good. The means for him, or the ends for him, justify the means to get there, like almost every revolutionary ever. And so Barabbas has made some choices that are not okay, but he is really being held up as a personification of us. The sinfulness and the bad choices and the ways in which we act and live apart from God are contained in this man. And when Pilate brings these two men forward, you've got the sinfulness of our own humanity put next to the innocence of Jesus. And the crowd responds as the crowds do. Release Barabbas. Luke sets this up in a beautiful way to really make sure that we feel the hurt. We are supposed to feel bad here. This is not a good thing. We, if we're really honest with ourselves, should see ourselves, at least in part, in Barabbas, and should agree that whatever we have done could be put on trial. And yet, Luke's pointing toward 
what will ultimately be the profound grace of God. So Jesus, in this moment, takes on the sin and the wrong and the heartbreak of the world while Barabbas goes free and is sentenced to death. Any questions about this? So the question is, who is in the crowd? It's the, the answer is it's never made clear. However, it is relatively easy for us to imagine that the Jewish leaders have gone out and fomented this angst against Jesus. They need people to want him to die, or else Pilate won't feel the pressure. If it's a closed-door negotiation where you've got a handful of Jewish leaders in Pilate, Pilate can resist that. That's not a problem. But when Pilate sees that there could be chaos, riots, if he doesn't do what they want, then Pilate will agree to their terms. Although, eh, let me think. How do I want to say this? There's almost the, the probably the truth of it, and then there's the point Luke is trying to make. So the truth of it is, the Jewish leaders likely went and got some people to stand there in the square and say what they wanted them to say. I mean, if you really want to be cynical, you could say they may have paid them to do it, right? Um, I mean, they paid Judas, so why couldn't they have paid the others? But I think what's more important is the theological underpinnings here. Luke is trying to make a point that we, not the Jews, if we are not careful, will reject God. That's the point. John's gospel, more explicitly than the others, has been used to persecute Jews. I mean, if we look back at, say, you know, Mein Kampf and, and awful things like that, John's gospel was actually used to defend the killing of Jews because they killed Jesus. If we're not careful, we can read even Luke as they killed Jesus and, using your phrase, I'm mad at them. We have to be careful not to reject the truth that our humanity will turn away from God if we are not careful. If we are not vigilant, if we are not committed, then we will reject the goodness of God. Because it's easy. The world is so, so powerful to pull us away from what is God's goodness. That our vigilance and our perseverance is critical in order for us to be the faithful people we want to be. If we go on autopilot, we will find ourselves sooner rather than later, very far away from God. The crowd has just been duped. And that duping is not just what happened in that moment, but it's what happens to us every day when we are not vigilant. <laughs> Question is, you know, could the they be Satan? I don't think so. We've got this... Oh, crap. You're getting me... Okay, so, there is always the truth that there is good and evil, and good and evil are 
in conflict all the time. And we're called to be agents of good. And that means resisting evil ourselves, but it also means working together to resist evil when it shows itself in huge ways. I want to resist the personification of evil. I don't mind devil Satan language at times, but I also don't want to set up that there's this guy, God, who is trying to do good things, and there's this guy, Satan, who's trying to do bad things, and we're sort of caught in the middle. It's a natural desire for us to personify good and evil. I think that that meets a human need rather than perhaps gets at the deeper truth. So I'd rather hold it as good and evil than perhaps say the word Satan. It's not wrong. It's just, it, it makes it, it almost excuses us a little too easily. And I don't want to excuse us because we can do things that support and expand the evil. We have that capacity, no question. And what Christ is calling us into is a life in which we, we try our best to lean into good all the time. We'll never get 100% good, but we can move closer and closer toward good most of the time if we do the work to get there. And in my mind, the crowd represents the laziness that humans can live into. And I mean, if you want to get really into how does this affect us now, very few people, even our active members of this church or any other church, go to church every Sunday. Very few people spend at least a moment every day doing something that centers themselves on the good, the goodness of God. When they don't, they can get off track. And I think it's our responsibility to corporately call people toward the good as often as we can. That, that means, well, let me see. This can become problematic when we use the idea of calling people toward the good in judgmental ways. It's, those, it's that judgmentalism that I think has caused a lot of people to leave the church, which is why we get a lot of people who say they're spiritual but not religious, because the church has, rather than being lovingly responsible to one another, become judgmental. That's very, that's very close, right? It's a very fine line. And I think we do have to call to one another to a better way of life, which means we have expectations of one another and we hold each other accountable and yet do not judge. And that's hard. Okay, I did resist the tangent. So come on back. Any other final questions before we get to the crucifixion? So crucifixion, Jesus has been sentenced to death. Again, we know the story. He begins to carry, he's been flogged, he carries his cross, he meets Simon of Cyrene as he's walking along the way, and that we have in all the Gospels. But something happens in Luke that is not like the other Gospels. There are two scenes 
in which Luke uses characters to give us a deeper truth. In essence, what's happening for Luke, you know, remember Luke is the parable gospel. If you love a parable, it's probably in Luke. Jesus, who has told parables, now, in essence, becomes the parable for us. And this happens in two different ways. As Jesus hands over his cross to Simon, he encounters the women of Jerusalem. That's the first way that Luke uses characters. When Jesus encounters the women of Jerusalem, he says what is perhaps the darkest saying that he gives, period, in any gospel. And before we get to it, let's put it into context. We have to go back to chapters 1 and 6 to understand this as Luke intends it. In chapter 1, Elizabeth, who has been barren her whole life, gets pregnant. And Elizabeth, after she gets pregnant, says this, or Luke writes this. After those days, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, This is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. It is important to note that for Luke, and this would have been true anyway, but for Luke and his literary purpose, being barren is a disgrace. A good man and woman have children. That is what they are to do. And in fact, if you heard, um, Bill Murray gave a great class on Sunday two weeks ago where he talked about marriage and the shift of theology of marriage up until the newest prayer book, when a couple, the marriage ceremony, the very first thing that is said about a marriage is for the procreation of children. That's what it has been forever. It has really only been in the last century or so that we've begun to make a shift toward love. Hey, what's love got to do with it? Right? That has never been what, this is, what marriage was about. Marriage was about having children because if you don't have children, your entire culture falls apart. And so in this moment, when Elizabeth conceives, there is the acknowledgement, explicit acknowledgement from Luke that she had been disgraced until God took that disgrace away. And then, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims to Mary with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Twice, Luke makes a very specific point to say that being pregnant and having children is this highest blessing. Now hold that in your mind and jump to chapter 6. In chapter 6, Jesus teaches what we call the Beatitudes. And this is what he says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you 
And when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what the ancestors did to the prophets. Being pregnant and having children is a blessing. And blessed are all the people that you would think are not. The poor, the hungry, those who weep and grieve and are outcast. Because in God's kingdom, what we think is true is turned upside down. And now, after Jesus hands over his cross to Simon, he meets a group of women along the road who are weeping. And he says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do this to the wood that is green, what will happen when it's dry? In this moment, Luke turns on its head what Jesus has been saying, because in this moment there is a pivot. For Luke, Jesus has been offering invitation after invitation after invitation into God's kingdom to be a part of God's work right now. And after his sentencing, there is a profound corporate rejection of everything that he has been trying to do. And in that rejection, he says, it would likely be better for you all that you never suffer what is coming. Because if they kill me, the Greenwood, what's going to happen when all of you try to do anything good? You will be killed as well. Remember, Luke knows that Jerusalem has been sacked and the temple has been destroyed. And so he's using this moment to say, you had your chance and you have rejected me. Now Luke continues to drive this point home. Remember, there are two moments when characters are used to make these profound points. The first being the women of Jerusalem on the road. The second comes after he has been crucified. Luke tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion by putting him between two criminals. Again, this only happens in Luke. Luke is the only one who tells the story of the women and the only one who tells the story of the two criminals. In other Gospels, the rejection of God is done by they, right? Just your, what you asked. They reject God. Luke makes it very personal. Jesus is on the cross between these two criminals, and even on the cross, prays for those who have done this to him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Only in Luke. And then, between these two criminals, Luke personifies the mocking. In all the Gospels, there is a moment in which Jesus is mocked 
for being king of the Jews, mocked for claiming something that he is obviously not. And yet in the other three Gospels, the mocking comes from nameless crowd. In Luke, the mocking comes from one of these two criminals. And so Luke holds up, remember at the beginning of this chapter, in the trial, Luke held up Jesus and Barabbas, the innocent and the guilty, the Christ and us. And when we get to the cross, Luke holds up again two people who represent the guilty with Jesus in the middle representing the innocent, except there's a switch. Crucified between two criminals, one kept deriding Jesus and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just like Barabbas, they are guilty of their crimes, yet one continues to mock, and the other repents. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Look at the arc that Luke has created here that began with the trial and the sentencing, where Jesus is the victim of the earthly evil to push God away. And yet even after that moment, grace is still there. And this person who is dying next to Jesus, who repents, will be in paradise. That's an incredible display of grace. And that, for Luke, is the entire point. He has written this incredible arc to what I believe is that moment. There is really no other moment that, for me, is so profound as an example of God's complete and never-ending grace for any of us. Nothing we can do separates us from God. Nothing we've ever done can keep us from God. All we are asked to do is turn toward God. Any questions or thoughts about that? Whew, glad I got through that. Sorry, that's the hard section. <laughs> Now we get to the death and the burial. Yeah. The question was, is, you know, did it take a long time for someone to die from the crucifixion? Yes. So the point of crucifixion is that you suffocate. So as you're hung, your arms and your shoulders will ultimately weaken to the point where your body will stretch such that you can't breathe anymore. And for most people... Death comes because they suffocate. Now, it's hours and hours of agony before suffocation, but the actual cause of death is suffocation. 
in other gospels, we don't get this in Luke, but in other gospels, you get the moment where they haven't died yet. And so what do they do? They don't just go kill them outright. They what? Break their legs. Why? Because their legs had been keeping them up enough to keep breathing. When the legs are broken, there's nothing that can hold their body up enough for the lungs to expand. And so legs are broken, body slumps, and your body is constricted enough to the point where you can't get the oxygen you need and you die. Horrible. Talk about terrorism. Thanks. You're welcome. So death and burial. For Luke, the death is tragic, but purposeful. We don't get what you might consider the gruesome in Luke's telling of this story. For Luke, it's almost as if, yeah, 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 he was flogged and he was crucified and that's fine, right? And then he died. But for Luke, there is something so much more important happening here, which is this extension of grace, right? When all seemed lost, it was not. And grace wins anyway. So when we get to this scene, you may note that it doesn't seem as graphic and gruesome as you thought it was. Well, those are the other Gospels. For Luke, it's just a little bit simpler, because for Luke, he is proving that this is true. Before we end this chapter, we have to go back to the very first verses of the Gospel altogether, in which Luke says, Hey, Theophilus, I'm sending you this story for a very important purpose. An amazing thing has happened. An event that was witnessed by many, and I have also investigated this story and found it to be true. And I've written down an account of this story for you to prove its truth. First few verses of the Gospel of Luke, we often skip over because it's like, Theophilus, what? Let's get to the manger, right? But those first few verses are very important to frame Luke's purpose. Luke is meaning to prove this to us. And so, yes, Jesus has died, and yes, he's going to be buried, but the most important thing is that lots of people saw this happen. And so Luke steps through the eyewitnesses. Five specific moments happen in the end of this chapter where Luke reiterates that lots of people saw this happen, which means it really happened. Starting in verse 47. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. In this verse, you get two of Luke's important points. Jesus' innocence, and this centurion, this Roman, saw this happen. So if he saw it happen, and he told people he saw it happen, it happened. Keep on going. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. That meant they're sad, they're probably sorry, dang, you know, he may have been something nice and shouldn't have died, shoot. But the point for Luke is, all the crowds saw this happen. Number three, 
keep going. All his acquaintances, so these are people who knew Jesus, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Roman centurions saw it happen. Crowds of Jews who wanted him to die now kind of regret it, saw it happen. All of Jesus' friends watched from a distance and saw it all happen. Then there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, blah, blah, from Arimathea. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb. Joseph saw it happen and took his dead body off the cross and wrapped it. But not just Joseph, because the women who had come from, with him from Galilee followed Joseph, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and then they returned to that tomb, preparing spices and ointments. Not only did Joseph take his dead body off the cross, and the women saw Joseph do it, they also saw Joseph put him in a tomb, and they knew where the tomb was, and they were able to leave in return with spices and ointments. Do not miss that Luke wants to hit you multiple times with the truth of this story. And why? What's the easiest way for people who don't want this Christian story to be considered true to undermine it? To undermine the resurrection, not the death. If Jesus never really died, then he does not resurrect. And then he becomes a good prophet. But for the early church, it was critical that they made sure that they proved Jesus died, which is a little unusual for us because we've just known this story for so long. We forget that all someone has to do is say, well, the, the thing was Jesus didn't actually die. Like he was certainly in a rough shape. But they put him in the tomb and they realized he wasn't dead and so they nursed him back to health and then misunderstood that he resurrected. No, no, Luke says. He was dead, dead. And lots of people knew he was dead. And they proved it. So that when the story of the resurrection is told in the next chapter, it is actually what changes the world. Any final questions or thoughts? Yes. So, question was, when the women return with spice and ointments and they prepare the body. So, more TMI. What happened when people were buried is the bodies started to smell. And so, in order to keep the bodies from rotting, they would do certain things to perfume the space. And so, ointments, spices, perfume, all of that was done in order to, in essence, help the decomposition and sort of, it's not, it's almost like a, a sloppier mummification. So the Egyptians knew how to do this, right? They pulled your brain out of your nose and they did all that stuff. And yes, you know that, right? No? Okay. They did. And so... The Egyptians pulled all the stuff out of the body and filled it, and skin didn't really start to smell. It's all the other stuff, 
right, that sort of putrefies and it stinks. And so in other parts of the world, they would do it differently, not quite so scientifically. And so that's what's happening here, is it's a simpler kind of embalming of a body. So they would have done this multiple times. It's not a once and done situation. Because tombs would have been, imagine, we think of tombs as that's yours, right? It would have been, families would have been buried in tombs. Almost like if you imagine uh, old southern cemeteries where you have families within crypts. That's really what was happening in this moment. They prep a body because you might go there and your husband's there and then your kids and their spouses are over there and their kids and you could have many, many bodies embalmed in one space. So if you die, I don't really want you stinking because I'm gonna have to put someone else in your family in that tomb at some point. And so there is a very normal ritual of you treat a body and then you treat it again and then you treat it again and then you treat it again until it has in essence mummified. And then it sits there and you add another body and over years you families are buried together. Two things are important because we have to know that that's the process because the women came to do that now, then they'll come again and he won't be there. They're not coming again just for fun. They're coming again because you've got to do it multiple times, every day or two, for a while, in order for the body to be properly embalmed and not smell. It's also very important to note that this was a new tomb in which no one had been buried. It's a little problematic for Jesus to somehow break out of a tomb and leave other poor dead people there. So it is more tasteful that Jesus would have been by himself in a new tomb. Necessary, not necessary, but it sure does make it a little simpler because no one would think, God was very uncouth to leave all those dead bodies in that tomb, right? No, he was by himself in a new clean tomb that's it. No, it would have been difficult, and what we see in the stories, what we'll see, oh crap, Rosamond, I don't know if it, if I, if it says it in Luke. In at least some of the Gospels, as the women approach the tomb, they're looking for someone to help them move the stone. So it's movable, but it's very heavy. And so what would typically happen is everyone had an order and a role in the culture, and so the women who would be embalming bodies are the older women because they're not raising children anymore. You know, th that becomes their responsibility to the culture, right? That is a role that they play, which means that an older woman, right? See, Jane's like, I'd love to do that. Um, so because of that, there's not perhaps the strength, or even if there is, it's so much safer to have someone else move the stones just in case. Stones, you know, they could fall, they could, you don't want to really get someone hurt. And so they needed someone to roll the stone away until they didn't because the stone was rolled away. And that's when everything kind of sets off and launches toward the resurrection. So what's interesting about Jesus is soldiers are posted to stand guard. Why? 
because if the body isn't there to prove he's dead and stayed dead, then they could just tell stories about his resurrection. And that would create a huge problem. So the resurrection, even from day one, was the real issue. Because so long as Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, you know, he's a nice person who talked about nice stuff. The resurrection changes everything. And they wanted to make sure that they undermine the resurrection as much as possible, which is why Luke takes such great pains to prove it. And so next week, we'll look at how he tells the story after he is resurrected. One last note. If you have not received emails from Susan Kalin about this class, reminders and things like that, please do write your email address down on one of the sheets of paper that are at either of the two doors on your way out so we can make sure you stay in touch over the summer in preparation for next year. Thank you all. See you next week.